page 1127 uh, in those Bibles. You'll need to have your Bible open today. There are a couple of other passages we're going to peek at. Uh, Again, page 1127. As you turn there, I received uh, a a message this week from our resident mathematics expert, Kurt Owen. Um, my, My son says that Mr. Owen is the greatest math teacher in the world. And uh, my experience tells me, this is all anecdotal, but my, my experience tells me that anyone who can get my son to, um, to like math and actually succeed in it likely is the greatest mathematics teacher in the world. Um, Mr. Owen said that he ran the numbers this week <clears throat> and extrapolated out that at our current rate of speed through the Gospel of John that we should make it through the book in October of 2025. Now, far be it from me to take issue with our resident math authority, but I want to remind you of why we're going at this speed through what we've called the overture to John's gospel. It's because John is giving us a, a, a helicopter ride. Maybe, maybe think of it as a drone's eye view over the mountain peaks of the good news about Jesus Christ. And uh, if you've ever gone on a tour like that, a helicopter ride, you, 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 you want to go fast enough so you feel like you're moving, but you're not going down. But you want to go slow enough to actually see stuff that you're, you're looking at. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, it's a maybe once-in-a-lifetime uh, opportunity to do that. So we start high up in the air in the Gospel of John, overlooking the grandeur of the Gospel. And if you're an unbeliever, maybe here today, or a new believer, this is a great place to start. Um, If you've been a believer, by the way, for 50 or 60 years, it's good to again be lifted up, to have your own eyes uh, raised, your heart raised up and reminded of what Jesus is all about. Now, John begins this book with the big themes of existence the big questions of existence. In just the first two weeks, we've looked at God's existence, that God is triune and that he's eternal in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, we looked at how we got here and by whom we got here. We looked at creation. There's, There's almost nothing bigger than these things. Why we're here. Who made this place that we are? Who is God? Now, this week, we get to these enormous categories in John's Gospel of life and light. Life and light. And these two are things, as you'll see, that are worth looking at from above. Why don't you just think about about your average day? Um, What is your average day like? You wake up, think about the tasks you have for that day maybe what you're going to wear today, what classes you have. At some point, maybe you think about what to make for dinner, what your boss is going to say, perhaps at the staff meeting on Monday morning, uh, what bills you have to pay, uh, what you hope to binge watch next week, or you're focused on the latest political crisis of the week, um, whatever it might, might be. We need to have our eyes raised to an exalted altitude to even see what is the meaning of doing all of those things. 
Because the prince of darkness, today we're looking, of course, at the Logos, the, the word, Jesus is the light of life. But the prince of darkness wants to keep your heads down, focused on what the apostle Paul calls the light and momentary. Not like the, the light we're about to talk about, Jesus is the light of the world, but light as an ephemeral, stuff that's so light, stuff that doesn't matter. Stuff that's weightless. Stuff that's going to be gone a year from now. He wants you to focus on that stuff. To be wrapped up in that stuff. To worry about that stuff. And in many people's lives, the evil one succeeds according to the Bible. It's all about this life and these problems. And that's all there is. No, <clears throat> we need to pull back. Let's do what Paul says in Colossians 3. Let's seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let's set our minds on things above so when we look down on these things, look down at the particularities of, of your life, you see those things as the Lord sees them, that you look at these things with the mind of Christ, that you see the world the way the Lord sees it. So let's do that by looking at the first five verses. We're going to focus on verses four and five, but again, the first five verses of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the Word of the Lord. Lord God, open our hearts today. Um, may the light of Christ shine in our hearts such that we see light and darkness for what they are, but we also see the one who is the life of all humanity. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, the themes are very simple in this passage. Where, and essentially, we're going to look at three words in the passage that are very big John words. These are big John theme words. We're looking at life light and darkness. We're going to look at the idea that in him was life, in Christ is life. The light shines in the darkness. And then the third idea, the darkness has not overcome the light. Those are the things we're looking at. So the first of these big theme words uh, here in John 1.4 is in him was life. In him was life. The word life is massively important to the Apostle John. For him, this is one of these one-ton words that comes up over and over again. It's the, it's the word Zoe. You know somebody named Zoe. That's his, their name means life. And it appears 36 times in the Gospel of John, far more than any other book of the Bible. No other Testament writing uh, comes even close. The next closest one has the word 17 times. That's the book of Revelation also written by John, over 25% of all uses of the term in the New Testament are found in John's Gospel. And then when you count John's letters 13 more times, it's easy to see that life is one of John's most important themes. And here we are, we're building on last week's theme of Jesus' Creator. The second person of the Godhead, the Word, Jesus, who was the subject of this gospel, 
Jesus is the source of all life in the universe. He has in himself the attribute of independent self-existence. He is the uncaused cause. He is the uncreated creator. Not only does he possess life, but life itself is found in him and through him. It's the claim of the Bible that life is found in him and through him. He created and sustains everything that exists. When you're on that helicopter ride, everything that you see as you look down, Jesus made that. Jesus made that. Jesus said, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, when in a few minutes we, we baptize little Max, we will recognize that his life comes from Jesus. He's being entrusted to Jesus. He is entering into covenant life with Jesus and the body of Christ. And we pray that he puts his faith in his creator and redeemer, Jesus. It's about his life being marked with being Christ-centered and united in the life of Christ himself. Now, this was the focus of last week. Wherever you see life in this world, it came from Jesus. He is the source of all life and creation. He's the sustainer of life. He is not evolving. He is not becoming. He is not in process, but he is eternal life. Now, to the kids who are here this morning, <clears throat> think about this. Maybe it's a, it's a Saturday morning and you're sleeping in a little bit. And as you're lying there, you happen to feel your wrist. And you feel this pulsing in there. Or maybe um, if you sleep like one of my kids likes to sleep, like sprawled across the bed, kind of like, like this. I cannot tell you which one. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe your arm feels this beating in your chest. Or sometimes you might feel a thumping in your neck. Other times, maybe the room is so quiet, you can actually hear your own breathing. That pumping, that beating, that breathing, that is life in you, and it's all overseen. It's all maintained by Jesus. Every beat and every thump is a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. But that isn't only true of the created physical world. It's also true of the new creation. Remember what we said in our first message. John 1 is not simply a recelebration or republication of Genesis 1, even though it sounds like it. But it's the announcement of the recreation of the world. A necessary recreation of the world after the fall into sin. John isn't just talking about physical life then, but spiritual life. The expression that he often uses in his gospel is eternal life. Now, I, I, I hope you're starting to get a sense of the altitude that we're at now as we talk about this big stuff. John 3.16, according to Kurt, we're going to get there in 2022, I think it is. John 3.16 is high altitude stuff. It proclaims that God loved the world and sent his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Life eternal, unending life. Life with the Father, life with the Son, life with the Holy Spirit, 
life unlimited with God. We should think of eternal life not merely in terms of its quantity, but also in terms of its quality. John isn't merely speaking of your earthly life as a temporal life that can be lost or can be forfeited, but eternal life. It is the life that God has in himself lived in us now. Now, that is hard to get your arms around. The life that God has in himself lived in you now. That's what he wants you to have. And eternal life, when you put your faith in Christ, starts now. It's a new way of living, new way of thinking, new way of seeing the world. And it never ends. It can never be lost. The life we're given at salvation is not 100-year life. It's not 1,000-year life. It's not million-year life. It's life eternal and begins now. Think of it this way. According to John, the opposite of eternal life is not mere death, but eternal condemnation. I want you to flip ahead to John 3. I told you to keep your Bibles open. John 3.36. Here is where the, the tune from the overture really starts to develop, and you hear the sort of the full-blooming melody is starting to pop out. Bottom of page 1130, verse 36. John the Baptist says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. He's talking to people who are living, by the way. <laughs> but shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. He's thinking in, 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 in light of eternal life. Who sees what? So to receive eternal life is to be saved from God's holy judgment and enter into Christ's eternal reign of glory. And it can start now and then continues forever. And then continues forever. Recently, I was at the dentist for some oral surgery and the dentist had these special glasses. He had work glasses on so that, you know, my spit doesn't get into his face. But then on top of that, he had um, these magnifying lenses. They look like, you know, pro protruding telescopes that kind of stick out. They're, they're affixed to his glasses. And at the same time, he had this powerful light right there so that wherever he moved, wherever he looked, he could see into the darkness of my mouth. And suddenly, sometimes like it's happened here at the pulpit where my, my, uh, my microphone goes out, the batteries go dead, his battery pack went dead. So here he is. He's right in the middle of it. My mouth is just wide open. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I hope you get these new batteries soon because the drugs that are numbing the pain, they're on borrowed time. Let's get at this. She, she puts the other battery pack on, and it's dead too. So what do we do? We, we, I, you know those dentist chairs are kind of like, those things weigh a ton. We've got six people in the dentist's office moving the dental chair to the wall so that he can go from DC to AC to plug in his lights so that he can see what he's doing in my mouth. It's the only way. It's the only way he could see what he was doing. John is telling us here that in terms of physical life and spiritual life, there's no other alternative source. There's no other place that you can find this. You've got to be plugged into Jesus, is what he's saying. It's the only place that this light comes from. There's no substitute. Only Jesus can give life. Only the creator can create life. 
Only the creator can create newness of life. That's what we're going to see. Again, the melody just opens up later when we see Nicodemus. <laughs> what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus came, brothers and sisters, so that you might have life and have it abundantly. Not merely physically, but spiritually. Not a life that can be lost, forfeited, a life eternal, abundant. Jesus is the life. Second, this takes us then to the light that shines. The light that shines in the darkness. Now, remember, this is the overture to John, and like any overture, the main themes, the big tunes, they come fast and furious. Same with the significant theme words in John. And we knew, now move from life to another important word, and that is light. The word light in the scriptures often has to do with knowledge. Knowledge. Think enlightenment. Think illum illumination. It's the word phos from which we get uh, words like phosphorus or photograph. My dentist the, needed the extra lamp of illumination to see, to look into my mouth, see where to put his instruments, so that likewise, when Creator Jesus gives you life, with it comes light, with it comes knowledge, with it comes things that you suddenly know. Now, <clears throat> with the light that Jesus gives humanity to all of us, those of us in the room here that might believe in Jesus, those driving by the church today to go wherever they're going, there is a certain extent that Jesus gives life to all humanity. Typically, we think of it as a knowledge of God and a knowledge of right and wrong. Paul will talk about this in, in Romans 1, uh, th that every human being has a knowledge of God to some degree. Whether they believe in him or not, they have some idea of who he is and the knowledge of right and wrong. It's why uh, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a, a religious person or not, a Christian or not, what background you're from, that people can talk in terms of things like justice because we have a, a, a givenness to ideas of right and wrong, even if we may disagree on what is right and what is wrong. We have an idea of it. Those are categories that we understand and we know. So that Jesus was and is the light of men. But there is a second level to this illumination. Later on, in verse 9, still in the overture, we're going to start to hear about the true light. That this could be understood not only at the level of physical life, but of spiritual life, spiritual light. Not just a knowledge of God and awareness of morality, but a saving knowledge of who God is. A saving knowledge of who he is. That he takes men and women out of darkness we're told, and brings them into his glorious light. Jesus brings that light as well. Not just creation, not just making you, but bringing new life to you, restoration to you, redemption to you, all those things. Remember that the whole story of redemptive history we said last week is, is laid out in the overture. That, In fact, the overture has more, more than that. The overture starts with pre-creation. Then it talks about creation. Then it talks about the fall and redemption and consummation. Jesus is not only the light of men in creation, but because of the fall, he has to come in human flesh to breathe into us new life of redeeming knowledge, redeeming recreation. 
And that if you want true knowledge from the true light, if you want to see the world as God sees it and think his thoughts after him, then you need to get plugged into Jesus. Let me give you just a couple of examples of how the light of life works in people's hearts. Uh, John Newton. Um, again, you may be here, you may be new today, you're Christian or not Christian. You probably have heard the, the, the song Amazing Grace. The writer of that song, John Newton. John Newton, a slave trader, by the way. Uh, a man who owned and managed slave ships, who used the wealth that came from that slave trade to live a life of self-centered, debauched immorality. But he heard the gospel and everything changed. An awareness, of course, of who God is, but also a, a knowledge of right and wrong that, 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 that rose up within his soul because he met Jesus in the gospel. On his tombstone today it reads, John Newton, once an infidel, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. To preach the good news that he had long labored to destroy because the light revealed to him who he was as a sinner, revealed who he needed in his life, Jesus Christ, by Jesus himself, who gives the light. You know, people think that when you turn to Jesus, Jesus is going to take all the fun out of your life. Now, I have to say that as a, uh, as, as a, as a man who, who, who lived in New York City for many years, a single man, worked in the television industry, that's what I thought when people presented the gospel to me. Why would I do something? Why would I make a decision that's going to take all the fun out of my life? I came to New York to have fun, and you're going to tell me I'm going to be the one person living in Manhattan that's not having fun. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. But that's what did happen. I came to know Jesus. And when you come to know Jesus, what happens is actually that your capacity for joy increases. Everything in your life that you were up to, everything that you were looking for, for some sort of taste flavor of something you couldn't name, but you, you thought of it as some sort of transcendent emotional experience, physical experience, transcendent knowledge, everything you were looking for suddenly looks dim. Because you see, you've been, you've been lifted up for the, the helicopter ride over all creation with the Lord himself who says, I am the one who made all of this. I am the one who made you. You know, sometimes I would go up to the, you know, I... I it's funny, when you live in New York, you never go to the places that people go to when they go to New York. So people come to New York and say, have you ever been to the Empire? No, I've never been to the top of the Empire State Building. Why? Because I'm waiting for you to come to town to make, make me take you to the top of the Empire State Building. So let's go. You know, and you go up there, and suddenly you look down, and I, I work in the city. I live in the city, and I'm looking for my apartment. I'm looking for uh, you know, where I work, and all, all of those buildings, they look so small. And, 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 and you look so small, and, and everything looks so small. And the taxi cab that you got there, it looks like a little matchbox car that you just pick up in your hand. 
But suddenly when you see the world from that exalted height of a new heart, all of this looks vast that the Lord has it all. And he's got a plan for all of this. He's got a plan for me. It changes, it changes your heart because your, your heart explodes with the capacity to see God's beauty and his plan in all these things and the purpose for your life. The great preacher G. Campbell Morgan tells a story of being a young boy. So G. Campbell Morgan, great preacher. His father was also a preacher, so he grew up in the church. He remembers, he tells a story about being a young boy, six or seven years old, and um, he was walking through the village where his father's church was and saw a man sitting on his on the bench that had come to know the Lord and was baptized two weeks earlier. And he sees this man on, the, on, on a bench and um, pulls, he, G. Kimball Martin pulls away from his mother and walks over to this man because the man is tearing up. He says, what's wrong? What are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? He saw in the man's hand, this is in a garden, a leaf. All he had in his hand was a leaf. And when G. Campbell Morgan asked this man, what are you looking at? He said, I'm looking at the beauty of God. Somehow his, his heart was now open. I'm surrounded, you see. I've been looking for transcendence all my life. I've been surrounded by it. I never saw it. Never saw it in my family. Never saw it in my children. Never saw it in my wife. But now, now I'm open. Now I see it. The beauty of it. His heart was filled, filled to overflowing by look at a leaf that had simply fallen off a tree. The light of life had come into his heart. So what happens to you when you give your life to Jesus? It's the strangest and most glorious thing, by the way. You'll go to work tomorrow. If you come to, if you come to know Jesus today, you're going to go to work tomorrow, just like you always do. And the same, your desk is going to look exactly the same. It's not like you really have been body snatched. You've been heart filled. It's just that all that you see tomorrow when you go to work will look absolutely different. Because you've been taken out of the darkness and you've been brought into the kingdom of light. Everything looks different. Brothers and sisters, you need this power in your life. You need it. And there is no alternative. In him was the light of life. In no one else. Without him is not anything that was made that is made. You cannot find this light of enlightenment anywhere else. He is the divine source of power. Now a warning here. A warning Every Christian, everyone who claims Christ, has been brought out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of life. But it's very interesting. Paul will ask Christians, are you living as if you live in the light? Think about that. That means that you can be like that man on that bench who sees the glory of God in a leaf. But over time, you're not living like that anymore. You turn away from having your mind on things above and you just focus every day on this stuff, our stuff, your plans, what you want to do later today, 
what your stomach is telling you right now. <laughs> what, you know, things, you know, n nothing further than six o'clock this evening. And there's lots of stuff to think about. But your, your heart starts to darken over time. So the warning is, are you walking as children of the light? We must as believers be who we are. Paul is always saying that you need to be who you are. Do you walk as one who lives in the light? People who have a regenerated status, or are you spending your time caught up in all the things of this world? So let me ask you, do you call yourselves followers of Jesus? Do you, do you, do you walk away from the darkness when it's presented to you? That can be a hard thing to do today. A very hard thing to do. Do you turn, do you run from those aspects of this world that want to turn you toward the darkness? You're children of the light now. Do you, do you run from the darkness? So walk then, this is Ephesians 5, as children of the light. Every week it seems there is a Christian that has fallen in the news. Just this week. I don't have to turn beyond this week. Just this week we, we, we learned that the founder of Larch, which is a you know anything about this, this is a Catholic ministry to people with learning disabilities, was in an abusive relationship with multiple women over multiple years. He's in ministry. He's in a revered ministry, but in his personal life, he was turning from the light to the darkness. Right? Yesterday, it was John MacArthur's son who sits on the board of Grace to You, charged with defrauding clients in an investment scheme. Now, I, I don't know whether he was guilty or not, but you see, but there's stories like this all the time. There is no point in saying that Jesus is the light of the world and that Jesus is the light of men if we don't reflect who Jesus is in our own lives and hearts, if the light never bounces off our hearts to others. Brothers and sisters, you are the light of the world. That's who you are. The church is to be the light of the world, set upon a hill, reflecting the light that is Christ. As R.C. Sproul would say, we are to walk quorum Deo. That is, we are to walk every day as if before the face of God, because we are living before the face of God. That's what we're called to. That's who we are. A couple of years ago, um, the computer program that I use for exegesis, for Greek and Hebrew study, um, when we put uh, Phil's computer up, I could see he had the same one um, working with. I, I, I Suddenly it crashed. And I tried everything that I could to get this program going again, uh, including reinstalling it but, but it, but it just didn't work. And so finally I had to do what I hate to do, which is to call the phone line for the computer help. And I'm just, you know, I'm thinking, what, what busy work can I do while I'm waiting on the phone, you see? That's ministry. And I, so you're sitting there, and uh, suddenly <clears throat> I'm talking to a woman who's out in Washington State, and uh, she's looking at all the things in the computer program. That she's asking me all these questions. Finally, she says, you know what I'm going to have to do? I have to take your computer over. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you an email. It's got a little program in it. You download the program. It lets me take control of your laptop from where I am in Washington State. And so before I know it, she's moving the mouse around and all this stuff's happening. And she's going into 
folders and directories I never knew existed. So I'm sitting there watching her, and she, we're, we're, on the, we're on speakerphone while she's doing it. I'm asking her questions about what she's doing. So finally I said, you know, I have to ask you, it's mainly pastors that use this software. Have you ever done what you're doing and seen things, seen files, seen folders, seen photos that no pastor ought to be looking at? And she sighed, and it was quiet. And she said, that's the worst part of my job. She said, yes, I've seen that, and it's made me wonder about my own pastor because the percentage, she says, is so high. So high. When we walk in the light, it means staying facing toward the light, and it means a life of transparency. It means things are not hidden. It means an openness to brothers and sisters if we have the good news, if our sins are forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice, if then we forgive the debt of others as they forgive our debts, then we are to live lives that are open to others. Each and every one of us, I suspect, has work to do in this area. Each and every one of us has some parts of our life that are generally hidden from other people. So ask yourself, what things do you do to hide in the dark, even as you say you walk in the light. What does that look like? We are to let our lives shine before men and women. But where and what are we hiding? What is your plan? Let me ask you this. What is your plan to bring those things to life? And by the way, the one word you must not use is attrition. You know, I, 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 I'm slowing down the rate with which I'm going into the dark. I'm not going into the darkness as far as I used to. There has to be a clean break. Finally, we get to the last big motif in this section. In a sense, we're already talking about it. We've had life. We've had light. Now we have something called Scotia, that is darkness. Our third point, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, biblically, darkness and light are the opposite of one another. That's not a surprise. But darkness and light are also in opposition, biblically, to each other. The darkness is going to try and reject and overcome the light. The way to think about this is that the darkness is hostile. The Bible word is there's enmity there. There's hatred. The NIV translates verse 5 as the world cannot understand you see the word, Jesus. But the verb used here has a double significance. Think more of the word grasp. The double meaning may be of the word grasp. On the one hand, the darkness cannot grasp with the mind, and so the darkness cannot comprehend the light. On the other hand, it also means to grasp as in grasping something with your hand, taking hold or control of something, so that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overthrow it, throw it down, overcome it, destroy it. Both ideas are at work here in, in John's Gospel. Now remember what we're talking about here. This isn't all philosophical, even, you, even though you've got these big words like life, light, and darkness. This is personal. For John, Jesus is the life, 
and Jesus is the light. A man who lived 2,000 years ago, the Word, the second person of the Godhead, is the light that has come into the world. And on his arrival, he appears as light, having come into darkness. And the darkness, we're told, is hostile to the light. That darkness is hostile to the light. It seeks to extinguish the light, the darkness, but uh, nature, in a sense, the, the nature of the darkness in this world, wants to grasp and overcome him. In fact, it's interesting that as the overture gives way to the rest of the book at verse 19, where things are going to start to speed up a little bit, immediately we get pictures of this. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, who can barely grasp, understand, comprehend what Jesus has been saying, comes at night. That's John 3, 2. And remember, after Judas betrays Jesus, he departs the upper room into the night. This is a theme for John. He's wanting you to make visual, spiritual connections between these things. Just to see how this opens up later, flip to John 11. That's page 1,141 of the Blue Bibles. John 11. <clears throat> this is the time of the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus. John 11, verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. There he's, he's making a connection between the visual, the spiritual, the night that we know, and what it's like to be in the night, and how that, that plays out spiritually in your heart. Jesus is talking about himself the way that John does. He is the light of this world, and if anyone chooses a life, to walk at night or in darkness, they're going to stumble because they don't have the light. Jesus is saying, because you don't have me. Your life will be a stumbling around. Now that is a good picture of my life in what I thought was happily joyful in New York City, stumbling around year after year after year. Before the light came upon me to show me what I was really doing and what I was up to. You see, the teaching of the Bible is that since the time of Adam and Eve, humanity loves the darkness. Humanity loves the darkness. Sinful men and women, that's us. By nature, we love darkness. We hate transparency. Going back to my New York City apartment, I'd open the door up, and there were these things called cockroaches. You've heard of them. And... Um, <clears throat> The only time you get to see them is that moment that you open your apartment door and the light comes into your apartment and then you see them and then you don't. Because they run into the darkness. Sinful men and women, we hate the darkness. We hate, we love the darkness. We hate transparency. And you know this, you don't have to teach a kid who's been told not to take the cookie from the cookie jar that when he does, he should hide. He just does it. Why? Why doesn't the kid who takes the cookie from the cookie jar after just being told not to take it, why doesn't he just stand there and eat it? Because he knows that the Board of Corrections is about to hit the seat of change, right? He's got to hide. The, 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 there are different kinds of darkness in John, but, but they work the same way. Sometimes in, in, in John's gospel, darkness means ignorance. 
that we can't grasp or understand Jesus. We don't see the light because we walk in the darkness. Saul, before he was Paul, you might say, lived in darkness. Other times it refers to immorality. When Jesus says that men love the darkness, it means that they're lovers of immorality. Think about pornography loves the darkness. Promiscuity loves the darkness. Then there's the spiritual darkness as well that, that, um, uh, that is unbelief. Again, Phil was talking about this in his, in his presentation. And then there is the darkness of evil, of the devil even. Often we're true as the prince of darkness. And finally, death, the darkness without a dawn. All these levels of darkness, and Jesus has come to eradicate all of that. See, all of this flies in the face of a Jesus who is, remember that last week we looked at Jesus, creator, verse 3, that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What were the first words of Jesus at creation? What were the first words of Jesus? Your red-letter Bibles don't do this, but they should, if they're going to be consistent. The first words of Jesus to creation is, let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. You see. Now, here's what you've got to take away from this. This should be your eschatology, if you will, in one verse. You know what that word means. It means eschatology. It's a view of the end, right? You're worried about the end. How do things play out in the end? What is my eschatology, a Christian? Here it is. Here's the answer to all of those transcendent questions. <clears throat> and it's right here in one verse. The darkness cannot overcome the light. The darkness will not overcome the light. In spite of politics, in spite of cynicism, in spite of uh, wars and confusion in the culture, the darkness cannot overcome the light. To put it another way, the lamb wins. The lamb wins. Darkness cannot overcome the light. Light always overcomes darkness. When light is present, light wins. Light can extinguish darkness, but darkness cannot put out light. The sun has to go down. Light has to go away at the end of the day for darkness to win. You walk into a closet today with one of those itty-bitty little kitty uh, birthday candles. And you light that up in a closet, and it will light the room up. Which means this. Jesus is the light. He is the one that made that light. He is the one that said, let there be light. He himself is the light of the world. And without him was not any light even possible. So that the claim is here, it's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or nothing. No other religion, no other philosophy can promise that kind of illumination or enlightenment. You know, we talk about the age of enlightenment. We also talk about the age, that age being over. There is no other source of light. There is no other truth but him. So that when Jesus pulled out his Hebrew Bible with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, even the wisdom in the Bible, along with the law and the promises, he said, all of that is about me. All of that light that you find there, all the light that you find in creation, all the light that you find in the world is my light. I'm the light that makes sense of that light. In a sense, it's the greatest I am statement there is. I am the light of the world. 
My friends, if you want to know the truth, you want to know God, there is Christ or there is darkness. No third alternative. The world was made for this light and created for this light. You were created for this light. So my question is, do you have it? Do you have it? Let me close with this. Uh, one last time, uh, turn to the very back of the Bible. Um, in these blue Bibles, it's the second to last page. It's the book of Revelation. Here we are with John. Once again, it's at the end of John's life. He's on the island of Patmos. He was given a vision, light on the mind. He was given. And here's what he says. Chapter 21 records it at verse 22. Look at, the, look at the vision and look at how it goes right back to John chapter 1. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So, my friends, may each and every day as we follow Christ be guided by this light, knowing Jesus and knowing that the Lamb wins. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the power of your word and the vision that it casts. We forget, Lord, that in a, how important light is to this world. We see nothing without light. So that the picture of Christ as the, the light, the one who is the light, the one who casts that light and casts long shadows over this earth to show us what is right and what is true and what is good and what is beautiful about what is darkness versus the light. This is such a critical knowledge, illumination, wisdom, heart change that we need. And so we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten and enliven our hearts. And Lord, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, make us to be people whose goal in the morning as children of the light is to walk by the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.